0: Hey folks, listen up, I wanna tell you about this amazing service called OneRep. OneRep removes your private information from Google and more than 150 people search sites. If you've ever gone through the painstaking task of requesting for those people search sites like PeopleFinder to remove your information, then you know firsthand how sucky that is. And if you haven't done it before, then you're leaving your privacy up for grabs. Herein enters OneRep. OneRep will do all the heavy lifting for you so that you never have to bother sending in any letters of request or submitting a form online. They even send you a detailed report every month that tells you exactly how many sites your information has been found on, how many sites it has been removed from, and how many more are left to go. And here's the best part for me. You can even protect your family of up to six people by choosing OneRep's family plan. This is what I use to protect my family's privacy and I could not be happier. So I want to extend this offer for you to try OneRep for yourself and get up to 60% off. You heard that right. I said 60%, not five, not 10, but 60 Take advantage of this discount and click on the link in the show notes to start securing your privacy today. The story I have for you today is about a double homicide that claimed the lives of Kiana Griffin and her aunt Sherlita Baber Bay. The women were going about their normal morning routines when they were ambushed by a murderous monster who laid in wait just under their noses and who left heartache and tragedy in his wake. I'm Renetta Rideout, and you're listening to Massage Noir Murders. At approximately 12.45 p.m. on the afternoon of Wednesday, March 13th, 2019, a 911 call came through the Grand Rapids, Michigan Dispatch Center that lasted almost four minutes. The caller was obviously in a very emotional state and needed some help. He told the dispatcher that there was blood everywhere and his sister wasn't moving. The frantic caller was Samson Cummings II, and he was standing in his sister's bedroom Samson urged the dispatcher to please hurry and send help to 553 Sheldon Southeast. Seven minutes later, the police arrived. When police spoke to Samson, he told officers that he found his sister's lifeless body upstairs in her bedroom, so the responding officers advised him to stay outside while they searched the property. The house was a large, yellow, wood-paneled Midwestern home. The front porch was enclosed, so officers needed to first enter the exterior door and walk across the porch to reach the front door. When they entered the house, nothing looked out of the ordinary on the first floor. As police worked their way through the house, they entered the bedroom upstairs where Samson indicated he'd been earlier and found 25-year-old Kiana Griffin lying on her bedroom floor covered in blood. She appeared to have been shot four times, including once to the face. It was a gruesome and sad scene made worse when police discovered Kiana's cell phone had not been far from her body, as if maybe she had been using it when she was killed. Police officers continued their search through the house. When they entered a second bedroom, they learned that there was more than one victim in this tragedy. Lying on the bed with earbuds in her ear and an iPad propped on a pillow facing her still playing was Kiana and Samson's aunt, 47-year-old, Sherlita Baber Bay. It appeared she'd also been shot, this time with one bullet to the back of her head. The first impression of the crime scene was that Sherlita was completely unaware of the danger behind her. From what police could tell, Sherlita may have been killed first, but at this point, it was really just a first impression. As investigators continued checking the sprawling house, they found a ton of evidence, including, but not limited to, a pair of bloody high-top sneakers, several spent shell casings, a bloody roll of duct tape, a shoebox containing letters, and an empty high-point firearms gun box, which was found inside a dresser that held men's clothing. Although there wasn't a gun inside the box, officers did find the gun's serial number and a purchase permit. Outside, other officers questioned Samson who told them that Shirlita and Kiana shared the home with his grandmother, Shirlita's mom, 64-year-old Jacqueline Baber Bay, and Shirlita's 45-year-old boyfriend, Jay. The mention of Jay explained the drawer of men's clothing found in Shirlita's bedroom, which held the gun box. So now that police knew there were more residents of the house who weren't present, it became imperative to locate them. Jacqueline wasn't hard to find because she was at her job, where she'd been since after 8 a.m. that morning. Unfortunately, the police had the heartbreaking job of telling Jacqueline that her sweet-natured daughter, Sherlita, and her bubbly, vivacious granddaughter had been murdered in their home. This was absolutely shocking news to Jacqueline, and she couldn't make sense of any of it. As police questioned her, Jacqueline told them that Everything inside the house that morning was normal. It was an ordinary morning, during which she prepared to go to work, which she left for at eight o'clock. Jacqueline didn't recall any exchanges of words that might've ignited an argument or anything that would indicate there was danger lurking. By this time, police were still unable to locate the fourth resident, Jay, and his absence spoke loudly. Detectives wanted more information about the fourth roommate, so they questioned Jacqueline and her family, hoping to find out more about him. When the police got to digging, they learned that the seemingly quiet, albeit strange, guy was harboring a dark and dangerous past. Meanwhile, a few hours after the murders, a detective captain searched the alley behind the Baber Bay residence when something caught his eye. He spotted what looked like a box of ammunition that had been haphazardly thrown into the alley. As the captain approached the box of ammo to get a better look, he saw a white plastic bag with something poking out of it. The something appeared to be the muzzle of a gun. Turns out it was a gun and amazingly its serial number had not been filed off. So investigators ran the number and learned that the gun belonged to a woman whom I will call Patrice for this episode. And she actually reported the gun stolen two years prior, back in 2017. Apparently, the gun quote-unquote disappeared during the time she was dating a guy, some guy named Jay. Fast forward a year, and Patrice filed a complaint with the police against Jay, reporting that he'd been harassing her. He kept sending her upsetting and frequent text messages. As for the gun, remember that gun box police found inside Jay's drawer? Well, the serial number on the box matched the serial number on the gun in police custody. So police realized this Jay is very likely the same Jay who stole the gun in the first place and harassed the owner. This was the link that tied him to the murders. So police needed to find him, but they didn't know where to begin. Jay was like a ghost and it appeared he intentionally lived his life off the grid. He had no cell phone, no job, no friends, and no social media presence. The Baber Bay Griffin family basically described Jay as someone who wasn't really imposing with his personality i got the impression that he just wanted to blend in and keep a low profile which absolutely worked because shirlita's family only knew him as jay and they really didn't take issue with much about him except the fact that he didn't have a job and this proved to be a major source of contention inside the house specifically between jay and Kiana. Kiana's mom, Anya Griffin, told Susan Samples for Target 8 NBC News that Jay's joblessness really bothered Kiana. The fact that he lived off her aunt and had no intention of getting a job wasn't something she respected. So this caused them to bump heads. Anya even said that Kiana and Jay, quote, weren't fans of each other, end quote, which basically means Kiana wasn't fucking with him, and he wasn't fucking with her, but they lived together. So you can probably guess that that wasn't the best dynamic. Anyway, while this was definitely information the police wanted to know, it was really only the tip of the iceberg with the sky. So remember earlier when the police found that shoebox that contained letters? Well, that box was found in Charlita's closet And those letters were correspondence between her and someone by the name of Daryl Damon Brown, an inmate in prison. Now, as detectives read the letters, they learned that this Daryl informed Sherlita that although his legal name was Daryl, he preferred to go by, you probably guessed it, Jay. As you can imagine, this was a major bomb. And it would prove to keep blowing up because I swear this Daryl Damon Brown's sordid past was a lot to take in and even more to investigate. Okay, where to begin? How about we go back to 2005 when a Grand Rapids school bus driver was on route picking up neighborhood kids, minding the business that pays them. When the driver pulled up to one of the usual stops, a desperate woman ran on the bus with the child the bus driver actually recognized and begged them to please drive the bus off, just take off. Obviously this wasn't a typical situation and I'm sure there are some rules about allowing people on board who aren't assigned, but thankfully the driver ignored all of that and did drive off, taking the woman and child to safety. The woman, I'll call her Angie, was the girlfriend of Daryl Brown, and she had an absolutely terrifying story to tell police. Angie reported that the night before, while her four children, including one shared with Daryl, slept upstairs, that Daryl brutally beat her downstairs. Angie told police that Daryl thought she'd gotten smart with him and proceeded to tie her up with cords he found around the house, gagged her, kicked her in the face, and urinated on her. And to top it all off, he poured lighter fluid all over her body. I know, I know, isn't that so awful? Like, I can only imagine how terrified she must have been. And I'm so glad she got away. I'm actually very surprised that she got away and I wish that I was able to find more out about that. But unfortunately, Angie later recanted her initial report because she still loved Daryl and wanted him to get help, not just go to jail. Thankfully, a judge didn't agree and decided there was enough evidence for felony kidnapping and charged Daryl appropriately. Unfortunately, he was not convicted of that crime because he took a plea deal in exchange for a much lesser misdemeanor domestic violence charge. And I honestly have no idea why a prosecutor would agree to such a deal when this guy is doing that kind of stuff. but that's exactly what happened. And again, unfortunately, I wasn't able to find any court documents for this case, and I definitely looked. But it's a crazy story, right? Anyway, I don't even want to imagine how many folks who have done horrible things like this are just out there walking the streets right now because of these types of irresponsible deals. It's maddening. And Perhaps Sherlita and Kiana would be alive today had this man been locked up where he belongs. Sadly, we'll never know. Anyway, I digress. Now, let's fast forward to 2017. And I know that's a huge jump, but I couldn't find a whole lot out about this guy, you know, in the years between. Although I did find some things. He was definitely busy committing crimes, (laughs) during that spread, but I didn't find much out about his life because again, he's a ghost, like who even knows, right? Anyway, it's 2017. Reverend Robert Dean of the New Church of God in Christ interrupted a man digging through the church's dumpster one day. He'd seen the man around the neighborhood before, so Rev Dean introduced himself and learned that the man's name was, drumroll please, pretend you hear it, you guessed it, Daryl and he used his real name, go figure. Long story short, the Reverend ended up offering Daryl a place to stay at the church, and so began his time there. At first, everything was great. Daryl was quiet, friendly, and helpful. He even attracted the attention of a woman, and I'll call her Janet, and they began a relationship. One day, not long after they met, Janet called Reverend Dean and asked if she could come see him in his office to talk about Daryl. She needed help because she was worried about his controlling behavior. So of course the Reverend told her to come on in and talk. Janet confided in the Reverend that although she thought Daryl was quote unquote, nice and well-mannered, there was something about him that scared her. Then she told Reverend Dean that Daryl forbade her to even talk to other men. Literally, he actually said, quote, I forbid you to talk to men, end quote. Now, Reverend Dean really had a hard time accepting this unsettling perspective of Daryl because he'd never even seen him upset before. He was always very even-tempered and pleasant. But as fate would have it, just as the Reverend was about to speak to Janet, Daryl burst through the church office door Reverend Dean and Janet were surprised by Daryl's sudden appearance, but the Reverend was prepared to welcome him and began to tell him that he'd just been talking about him when Daryl rudely cut him off and said angrily, quote, I forbid her to talk to males, end quote. Now, at this point, though stunned by this behavior, Reverend Dean basically told him, hey, sit down and act like you have some sense. And at that exact moment, Janet opened her mouth to speak and Daryl literally lunged at her. He would have struck her right there had Reverend Dean not stopped him. That's when the Reverend told Daryl to get out and never come back. And that was the last time he ever saw him. Okay, so now that you know a little background on Daryl, You can see why detectives investigating these murders are hyper-focused on him. You know, we've got a ton of evidence, including that gun that ties him to that other woman years ago. You've got this violent, dangerous past. He's missing from the house. All the things are there, right? And clearly he's a public safety threat and needed to be caught as soon as possible. But even knowing so much about Daryl's background didn't help because police still had no clue where he was. In the days that followed the homicides, police canvassed the neighborhood surrounding Sheldon Southeast, hoping to find cameras that might have captured Daryl as he made his getaway. And they got lucky. To my surprise, investigators found multiple cameras that actually recorded Daryl immediately following the murders. Daryl was recorded on one of those cameras just one measly mile north of the Sheldon residence, two hours after, which means he was still in the area while police swarmed the house on Sheldon. It's so frustrating. Anyway, The last recording of Daryl was taken at the Children's Museum of all places, where he can be seen pleasantly and casually talking to someone at the desk. Later, when police questioned the employee, they were told that Daryl said he was there because he knew someone. Now, police have not explained who that person was, what the conversation was about, you know, what the relationship between him and whoever he was meeting was like, none of that. But whatever happened, whoever he met, 12 minutes later, he walked out and was never seen again. It's frustrating to know that he hung around for two hours only for no one to know for several days it's infuriating that he could destroy the lives of so many people and simply get away, free to cause harm again. But that's exactly how it happened. As if Daryl's escape wasn't bad enough, the Baber Bay Griffin's frustration was about to turn into outrage because new information was revealed that put everything the Grand Rapids Police Department did under a microscope of public scrutiny. It soon became public knowledge that a little more than two hours before Samson discovered what happened, another 911 call was placed at 1029 AM. The call was made by Kiana herself and she was desperate, desperate for help. Thanks to Fox 21 news, I have the call to play, so I'll play it now. It's about a minute and a half. Wednesday, March thirteenth, two thousand nineteen, ten twenty nine and twenty five seconds. Nine one one emergency. Where are you located? I'm sorry, I ma'am. Mean, I can't hear you. Are you able to tell me where you're located? No. Are you at a? Five five three. Sheldon, Avenue Southeast. Please hurry now. Okay, I got Sheldon. What's the number? Five five three. Hurry, Five five three. Sheldon. Okay. Can you tell me what's going on there? Okay, ma'am, I'll start the police that way. Can you tell me what your name is? Okay, chilling, right? The first time I heard it, I ran through all sorts of emotions. I was frustrated, scared, sad, and ultimately angry. It's a lot to take in and having hindsight makes it so much worse. On top of that, There were parts that were difficult to hear because obviously Kiana was whispering. So I'll read the full transcript for you and I've also included a link to the transcript in the show notes. 911 caller, I need help. Dispatcher, hello? 911 caller, I need help. Dispatcher, okay, where are you located? Dispatcher, I'm sorry, ma'am, I can't hear you. 911 caller. I know. 911 caller. 553 Sheldon Avenue Southeast. Please hurry. Dispatcher. 553 Sheldon. Okay. Can you tell me what's going on there? 911 caller. Can you just hurry up, please? I'm finna die. He's trying to kill me. He already killed my auntie. Can you hurry up, please? Dispatcher. Okay, ma'am. I'll start the police right away. Can you tell me what your name is? 911 caller, Kiana. After she said her name, the call disconnected. So remember the phone was found near Kiana's body? Well, it's assumed that she was on that 911 call and was interrupted by Daryl, who likely attacked her at that moment. Now do you see why the family is pissed though? Kiana called for help and practically spelled it out that she was in real danger and that her aunt had already been killed. And you may be wondering whether or not the police actually showed up, right? So yes, they did arrive. The police actually did show up. And one of the officer's body cams, which was later released to the public, showed three different police SUVs responded to the call, but only three officers walked up to the house. In one version of the body cam footage, the officer whose cam it is can be heard saying the call quote unquote sounded interesting to which another officer responded quote, so you decided to join the fun end quote. Now this sounds like normal work banter to me, But considering the nature of their jobs and the nature of Kiana's call, it doesn't sound to me like they're really taking the call seriously, right? Like right from the beginning, it just, it looks sus. Anyway, as the trio of officers walked onto the property of 553 Sheldon, one can be heard questioning Kiana's mental health, and another one of them even mockingly quoted that Kiana said in her call someone was trying to kill her. But again, no urgency. So Officer Bodycam knocked on the door, but no answer and no sound came from the house. So he knocked again. And again, the trio waited. But still, there was no response. Officer Bodycam asked dispatch to call Kiana back, but again, there was no response. Then Officer Bodycam tried the doorknob just in case it was unlocked but alas it was not by this time officer number three left the porch to take a look around the house followed by officer number two and eventually officer body cam. as they walked around the house i felt like they were too casual about it you'd think they weren't called there because someone's life was in danger it was like these cops didn't have a care in the world anyway The three officers walked around and noted that they didn't see any signs of forced entry, so there were no broken doors or busted windows. From what they could tell, the house looked properly secured. Officer number three can be seen looking into a window and is heard saying that he could see what he thought might have been a dining area, but I guess it didn't seem like anything unusual. And with that, the three of them left. They were there all of three minutes and 42 seconds, and then they were gone. Two hours later, well, we know what happened. Those three minutes and 42 seconds put the Grand Rapids Police Department under fire, and Kiana and Sherlita's family held the torch. They wanted to know why police didn't just break down the door. Why weren't additional units dispatched? Why didn't the police seem to care? Her family believes Kiana may have still been alive, but maybe restrained, possibly with that duct tape they found at the scene, although that's never been mentioned publicly. The family also believed that if Kiana's call had been handled with care, they could have possibly saved her. But according to Grand Rapids Police Sergeant John Witkowski, the responding officers didn't believe they had reasonable suspicion to break into the house, which is required by the Fourth Amendment. You see, the Fourth Amendment basically protects U.S. citizens from having our homes, cars, papers, and other effects searched and seized without probable cause or a warrant. Sidebar, The Grand Rapids Police Department is always under fire because of the Fourth Amendment violations. It's common and it always has to do with drugs. But here was a woman who needed help, who said she was in danger, who said someone had been killed. And, you know, everyone throws their hands up and calls Fourth Amendment. Anyway, listen, you know, I can go down a rabbit hole. And I'm no expert, but in my opinion, Kiana's call definitely warranted probable cause to enter the home without a warrant simply because she said her life was in danger. Again, however, according to an internal affairs report recently scooped by Target 8 NBC News via the Freedom of Information Act, the dispatcher did not hear Kiana say her aunt had been killed. This vital detail was missing from the dispatcher's relay of the conversation to responding officers, and the result of the mishap was detrimental to any hope of survival for Kiana. But... According to that same document, internal affairs concluded that both the dispatcher and responding officers acted appropriately. And basically that although what happened was a tragedy, it would not have been avoided had the call taker heard the part about Shirlita already having been murdered. The IA investigators report went on to further address the claims made by Shirlita and Kiana's family that race was a reason why police failed to act, quote, I conclude that none of the officers who responded knew what race the nine one one caller was. End quote. What a cop out. We all know neighborhoods, but whatever. They say they didn't know. Okay, it's true. Maybe they didn't know, but they probably had a good idea. But just like it doesn't mean shit to me, it doesn't mean anything to the Baber Bay Griffins either. They maintain their stance that had Kiana's call come from, let's say Forest Hills an affluent and 95% white community, she might have lived. The cavalry would have been called and the door knocked down and the home searched in an effort to save the caller. But I guess we'll never know because no life-saving measures were taken for Kiana. She called for help and no one tried to save her. It's a horrible, bitter pill for the family to swallow, and yet they press on. But it's hard when there's been so much loss and no justice. On Friday, July 10th, 2020, almost a year and a half after the murders, the Baber Bay Griffins held a vigil at 553 Sheldon for their dearly departed Kiana and Sherlita. They gathered to celebrate their lives and remember who they used to be and to mourn the future they would never have. Kiana had only just turned 25 five days before she was murdered. Her mother Onya told Susan Samples that she carries Kiana's high school diploma with her every day because it was the last big accomplishment Kiana made. Kiana had her whole life ahead of her and in an instant it was gone. Charlita is remembered to have been a kind sweet loving woman who was her mother jacqueline's rock her gentle nature is missed after the vigil was over that night jacqueline left the candles burning on the porch in honor of charlita and kiana and then she and her five-year-old grandson went to bed but they never lived to see the next day sometime that night a fire began caused by the candles on the porch. And it took the lives of Jacqueline and her little grandson. Another horrific tragedy for this family. They already suffered so much. 553 Sheldon Southeast has since been demolished, but all the sadness and grief remain with the family. And they know that all they've lost is because of Daryl Damon Brown. His blatant disregard for life and his casual penchant for violence are to blame for all the hardships endured by this family. And the worst part about it is he's still out there and can do the same thing to someone else's family. On July 19th, 2021, Donald Washington, the director of the U.S. Marshals Service, said in a press release about Darrell that his, quote, alleged crimes make him a significant threat to the public, so it is crucial that we locate him. Our deputies, along with our federal, state, and local law enforcement partners, are determined to bring Brown to justice. With a reward of up to $25,000 being offered, We're asking anyone with information about Brown's whereabouts to come forward, end quote. Daryl Brown is described as a now 48-year-old, 5-foot-8-inch black male with black hair and brown eyes and weighs approximately 180 pounds. There are plenty of links in the show notes that have his picture, so please go look at them. He is also known as J, J-A-Y, J.J. Robinson, Michael Richardson, and Marcus Wright, and who knows what name he could be using now. The public statement also said that Daryl has lived his whole life in the Grand Rapids area, but it's known that he has family around the country in Arizona, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Ohio. They also believe that Daryl has had help keeping a low profile. Considering how spread out his connections are, it's important that everyone, everywhere, keep their eyes open. I also want to advise everyone to keep an eye on their friendly, inexperienced, somewhat naive friends and relatives who may be in a relationship with someone similar to Daryl's persona. Sherlita and Daryl, met through some type of pen pal program and unbeknownst anyone to anyone else they met at a library on the one day that she didn't go to the library with her mother her mom always went with her it was their thing and this one day was the day she met Daryl so please 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 keep an eye out on your vulnerable family members who may be feeling lonely who may be with some loser scumbag guy that's just leeching off of them who may seem totally normal because remember Daryl also seemed normal and friendly and helpful for an extended period of time but eventually women close to him saw glimpses of the violence and perhaps your loved ones have seen glimpses too Daryl also uniquely doesn't use social media at all, and he doesn't have a cell phone. He's likely unemployed or working a job that may pay him under the table or in exchange for service, like at the church. Now, I'm not saying everyone is Daryl, so you know, be a Karen and call the police on all these people, no. I'm saying to be aware and that it's important to know that there are people like him and he is still out there preying on innocent people. It's in everyone's best interest to keep their heads up and their eyes open just in case they encounter him or someone like him. Anyone with information should contact the nearest US Marshal Service Communications Center at 877-WANTED2 or you can visit them online at www.usmarshals.gov/tips As always, thanks so much for listening. It's always amazing to see how far and wide these stories have spread in the world. I never imagined this type of support, but I truly am thankful and grateful for every single listen and all of the support. So thank you. This is a Savvy Sounds production, written and produced by Renetta Raya.